It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Hi, welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, we're back. It's very exciting. It's been a long time since we've uh, been to sea. The, it's very cute that you said it that way. But yeah, it, ha- it has been quite a while. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting back into it. Also, we are in the same physical location. Yeah, yeah. I am uh, staying with Ben for a couple of months. Um, so... We are recording on the same couch. On, on the same microphone. Uh, fortunately, we have a headphone splitter, so we don't have to, like, use one set of over-ear headphones and, like, sit super close to stretch them over both of our heads. Is that what people do? No, obviously not. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, theoretically, that is what we would have had to do if Oof. we didn't have a headphone splitter. I mean, wouldn't we have just used, like, earbuds? Okay, no, I'm overthinking this. Sorry. <laughs> We're, we don't have to do any of this, and that's good. Yes. So yeah, it's been a little while since we've both been uh, messing around with Ishmael, Queequeg, Ahab, and the rest. Yeah, yeah. The perfidious Starbuck and all that. I, You know, I don't think that's fair to Starbuck. I would not call him perfidious at all. He is morally upright. That's the problem. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I just wanted to dunk on Starbuck. There are so many other ways you can do that. This is true. Um... You know what? I should not attempt to list ways I can dunk on Starbuck. We'd be here all day. Yeah, yeah. Also, he's not even in these chapters. Well, okay. He's a, there's an interesting bit with him in it, but yes, he, he does not appear in these chapters. Yes. Uh, so today, we are talking about chapters 43 through 46. Um, and that, sorry? This is kind of, like, I think our last few... The last few episodes, the last few, like, chunks of chapters that we did were, like, these really long, kind of thematic chapters. I mean, the last one was The Whiteness of the Whale. Um, hmm, that sounds like it might have to do with themes and symbolism and perhaps <laughs> allegory. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot of all of that stuff. And now we're kind of back to, I guess what you would, I guess what I would call the norm for this book, where, like, the stuff that an individual chapter is about keeps changing, like, where there isn't like a, a coherent thesis statement or like a basically this episode like most of our episodes is going to cover a lot of different ground yes and uh i think that some of these you know hark the chapter 43 that's like a page long they don't have time for multiple things and that one's just pure narrative it's just things that happen which is really weird because i remember i think it was uh, a couple chapters back, uh, yeah, Moby Dick, the chapter 41, Moby Dick, you said, you know, we're back to narrative, we're easing back into it. And in one sense, yes, but then we just yanked back to the whiteness of the whale, which is not, like, narrative at all. It's purely thematic and general, and, you know, it's giving some backstory. It's not that it's not about the narrative, but it's not proceeding in the story. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
But uh, this time we've, we're we're hopefully really getting back to it this time. We swear. We're totally like, things are happening. There's characters doing things, and they're going to keep doing things, right? It, yes, there are definitely characters doing things in in these chap in the chapters we're reading today. Um, so uh, yeah, do we want to get started? Get into Hark? Uh, should we should we mention the silly beer? Oh, God, right. So. Uh, so when I got here to Ben's place, uh, which was in early April, uh, there was a, a can of, uh, beer at the back of the fridge that he wouldn't let me look at, um, because he was like, oh no, this is for when we next record whale statements. And it, it kind of took a little while for us to get to that, um, because... You're making me sound a little ridiculous, and that's totally fair. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, it was like the end of the semester, and yeah, also... I was I was absolutely just uh, did not have the energy or time to give this a good shot. Yeah, and I mean, also, you know, I was kind of like adjusting to being here, so yeah, so it took us a, a little while uh, before we actually recorded this podcast, which meant that every time I would go in the fridge to like unload groceries, I'd be like, all right, I can't look at this one can at the back of the fridge. And I really appreciate your dedication to the bit my stupid bit i i you're a true friend thank you thank you very much uh so i guess we the 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 reveal is it is called squall me squish mail and it has a picture on the label of like uh a sort of like elephant man uh i guess ishmael and queequeg on a boat attacking uh, uh like a, a lemon not lemon it's a banana cream pie stout so that is a banana cream pie moby dick and it's elephant brewery or yeah. elephant brewing which is why that's a those which, are which is why sort of pseudo elephant creatures yeah it's i mean so this is what craft beer labels are like just in general yeah. <laughs> um which yeah. is one of the things that's fun about being into craft beer yeah no this is this is on some level one of the worst labels I've ever seen, and on other levels some of, one of the best labels I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen, like, craft beer labels that are just, like, kind of actively gross. Oh, yeah, like, no. Like, that, that I look at that and I'm like, that doesn't make me want to, like, consume, like, a like a, a, a beverage. That makes me want to look away. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anyways, this has a... You know, I'm reasonably certain this is not a scene that occurs in the book. I don't think... Ishmael and Queequeg are well, all Well, ever... yeah, he's, I mean, Queequeg's got a gun. No, that's a harpoon. It's, it's a harpoon. Oh, Look it's a harpoon gun. You're right. Yeah. They have, they have Queequeg and all. Turns out elephants are far more technologically advanced than, uh, than they would have been in our timeline. Well, I mean, it's not like, okay, there are guns at the time that. Sure, but not but harpoon not... guns. Yes, like, not that's harpoon. like a canister to air harpoon gun or something, which that's me entirely talking out of my ass. I do not know what makes a harpoon gun go or when they were invented but queequeg is definitely not using guns in this narrative no no that is true okay this this has been a ridiculous digression i was just no i think excited I about the goofy beer cult you know yeah no i i am i am very glad i am i'm enjoying this beer right now it tastes great uh thanks it is in fact the exactly the kind of thing i like which is a sour with a bunch of like weird flavors in it um you know it and it's somehow vaguely related to our podcast, so. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got some diluted percentage Moby Dick in it. Oh, oh, that's disgusting. I just mean that it's like 
You know what? I can't defend that. I, I, I know can't. that you just meant, like, it has the spirit of Moby Dick or whatever, but even that, even that, like, that would mean it was, like, haunted. <laughs> do ghosts have, do whales have ghosts? Are there ghost whales? I mean, Moby Dick is, like, in many ways, like, a ghost story, right? Mm, yeah, no, that's fair. Um, or at the very least, it's it's pretty gothic. Yes. Anyways, this has been wildly digressive, <laughs> and it's my fault. No, you get the credit. Uh, okay, so chapter forty-three, Hark. Uh, so as we said, this is a this is a short narrative chapter, um, and it's it's almost entirely dialogue between two characters who appear first in this chapter and whom I suspect never appear again. Uh, yeah, they're just two, um, two of the, uh, the sailors and, uh, whalers on the Pequod are, uh, in a, um, in a bucket line as they're passing, uh, water from, uh, I believe your notes say one big bucket to another. Yes, uh, which, uh, you commented on this, uh, at one point that that makes it sound sort of pointless, which is not. What they're doing is they're moving water from, like, a, from storage to... The scuttlebutt, which is where that's the like the the cask that people actually get drinking water out of during the day. So it is they're doing something purposeful. Yeah. However, they are moving water from one large bucket to another. <laughs> you know what? Sure, yes, they are they are transferring water from one storage unit to another via other smaller storage units. And if you call those all buckets, it sounds very funny. Yeah, yes. To me, but yes. Uh... I mean, would you prefer that we call them butts because that is also what they're called? No. <laughs> No, bucket is somehow the less silly option. Anyways, they have buckets. Yeah. They're moving buckets. They're doing it very quietly because it's the middle of the night. Yes. Um, and so uh, the, the conversation that they have is that one of them, uh, Archie, says to Kabako, uh, did you hear that noise? And then they basically argue about this. And um, whether they heard that noise. Yeah. And, and uh, Archie's theory is that there was some kind of cough. And uh, Kabako's like, no, you didn't hear anything. Um, and I go back and forth on this. And, uh, Archie's conclusion is that, uh, there is, he says, there is somebody down in the afterhold that has not yet been seen on deck. And I suspect our old mogul knows something of it too. Which is referring to Ahab, because there's that whole concept of the Ahab as the mogul of the uh, ship. Yeah. So, uh, this is, I mean, this is basically pure foreshadowing that there is some person like hidden in the hold who hasn't been revealed yet in the story um mm -hmm. yep it's that yeah it's um, foreshadowing which, i mean i think there's been there, there was an implication way back like early, much earlier in the book when ishmael was going on board there was this bit where he saw some kind of like shadow enter yeah, the ship figures in the uh, in the mist right before he right before or after i don't remember he met elijah Yes, and, and so I think, you know, uh, I do not know for certain. Um, at this point, I am not any longer, like, fully unspoiled on this book. Uh, not, this is not just because of, like, the, the sort of hints that Ben gave on the podcast. I also, like, went and looked at uh, some of the, the bare details about how the story ends, just because I wanted to. Um, yeah, we... We were having a pretty large break for various reasons, and you know what? I think it was perfectly reasonably like, you know what? I'm not going to try and just, uh, you know, hold too unspoiled. And frankly, I don't think this is a book that really 
spoilers are the major issue. This is a book so much about the texture and the individual characters and the details, and frankly, given it's so big and full of things and just weird and goofy at times, I think a lot of the time when you read a short summary, you're going to get a slightly inaccurate sense of it. It's going to seem more unified, or rather unified around simpler ideas than it actually is. You know, frankly, I think if someone were just listening to this podcast, which goes pretty in-depth, you'd still get something else out of reading it. So I don't think this is a book that can really be spoiled, although I totally understand the feeling of like, but now I know how it ends, because... Yeah, you know. um, yeah, but... but uh... So, sort of contrary to what I was saying, like, yes, I am spoiled on, like, literally, like, the ending. Like, I think I actually uh, read, like, the last paragraph or something. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I have no idea what's up with this possible, oh. I guess, stowaway? I mean, so stowaway is a slightly weird word for this because, uh, you know, Archie implies that um, Ahab knows all about this person. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly seems possible to me. Like, I find it wholly believable that Ahab has secreted someone away in the ship for unknown Ahab reasons. Okay, you know what Ahab reasons are. You know what all Ahab reasons are. It's getting the white whale. Well, right, but I don't have any idea why having a secret person on the ship would be useful to that end. I, Anti-whale specialist? <laughs> I mean, he's got one. That's Queequeg. I mean, technically speaking, that's like basically everyone on board. Well, yes, but like Queequeg was absolutely hired as an anti-whale specialist. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I look forward to... I, I can only imagine that when this secret person emerges, it's going to be cool as hell. Uh, because how, how could it not be? <laughs> yes, the, um, there's, there's intimations of an unknown presence aboard the ship. Yes. Uh, I also just want to, before we move on, because that is the entire chapter. Yeah, that, that's That's it. all there is. Uh, before we move on from that, I do want to say that the uh, the phrase, um, from hand to hand, the buckets went in the deepest silence, only broken by the occasional flap of a sail and the steady hum of the unceasingly advancing keel. I love it. It's good. I, I like boat content. I, I like sailing ships. And the phrase, unceasingly advancing keel, specifically the steady hum of the unceasingly advancing keel, thrills me to the bone because I, I know what that sounds like and it's real cool. Although I probably don't know what it sounds like on, like, a genuine old-school wooden sailing ship. That's got to be music. <sighs> yeah. No, I, it's, it's... I want it, that. It's very evocative. Uh, it, 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 it very much uh, creates this, you know, um, this... Hushed atmosphere? Yes, this, this midnight scene. Yeah. Um, and keels really do hum. They make, like, there's a thrumming that goes through the boat from the motion of water against it. Even in, like, a little sailing boat, you get it. Yeah, I... That makes sense. Um, so that's not like a, a metaphorical hum. It's a very, very literal, like, resonant sound that I think is just real cool in real life and in books. Yeah. Okay, uh, shall we move on? Uh, yeah. Chapter 44, The Chart. Oh, this is, this is, I keep saying this is one of my favorite chapters, and it's going to keep being true, and this is one of my favorite chapters. Yeah, this is, this is a great one. Some real powerful Ahab stuff here. Um, so, I guess to, to summarize this chapter, um... Uh, Ahab this... uses a protractor? <laughs> yes. So, uh, uh, this is about, basically, what Ahab does immediately after, um, 
the the scene where you know he he swore everyone to his purpose and then this then the storm that rolled in immediately after that exactly um so this is what he did down in under the decks when the storm was raging over yes uh so what he does um is that he uh goes down you know to his uh, like i guess this must be to like his quarters right yeah, his cabin yeah, yeah his cabin um and he takes out uh set of sea charts and he studies them and like marks them up in this like minute way with a pencil um and this is uh this is something he he does habitually um not just this night uh and and what he's doing is trying to like trace out places where moby dick might possibly be in the ocean yes he is trying to track a whale through pure reasoning and knowledge of whale behavior in the entirety of the world's oceans like the global oceanic space and he's got a pencil and he's got a map and he knows how whales work so he's trying to figure out what what like course will give him the best chance of running into moby dick with the pequod before getting to the place where he thinks they're most likely to find him. Yeah, which, uh, you know, I think, I I hope we can all agree, just like on the face of it, sounds completely ludicrous. Yes, in fact, uh, now to anyone not fully acquainted with the ways of the Leviathans, it might seem an absurdly hopeless task thus to seek out one solitary creature in the unhooped oceans of this planet, to quote Ishmael. Yes, so so Ishmael is... is he is, he is conceding, yes, this sounds totally impossible, but he is going to dedicate much of the rest of the chapter. And to, the next chapter. Yes, um, to, to saying, okay, but it's not as ridiculous as you think. For Ahab. For Ahab, yes. Um, so uh, his first point in that regard is that uh, Ahab is, like, Ahab knows his shit. <laughs> so, like, on some level... The fact that Ahab is even trying to do this says something, that, like, someone who has the kind of knowledge of whales and of the ocean that Ahab has is considers this a worthwhile activity. Which is not a great argument when also Ahab is monomaniacal to the point of monomania. Well... <laughs> I, look, I ran out of words. <laughs> I, yes, no, that's true. There is definitely this kind of weird thing with Ahab where, like, on the one hand, he is this kind of uh, unparalleled expert. Uh, or, or that's, he's a genius. Yeah, that is how he's being presented here. So, like, if he's doing something, you can say, okay, it probably is, like, useful because Ahab is extremely competent and wouldn't do stuff that's pointless. On the other hand, he is... he is mad. So, you... So if Ahab is doing something, it simultaneously obviously must be useful towards his singular goal, but also it might not make any sense at all to other people. Um, and so... Yeah, there's a, there's a tightrope walked here, and ultimately, Ishmael is arguing that Ahab is competent in this, that he's, this is something he can do, or at least that he might be able to do. And there's some discussion of, you know, uh, the migratory habits of the sperm whale, how, you know, there's um, 
particular regions where the sperm whale can be found at a given time of the year. There's particular veins or like channels through the water that sperm whales are known to travel in rather than just sort of traveling freely. Um, uh, there's even uh, uh, one thing Ishmael says uh, is, you know, uh, basically that sperm whales are thought at the time he was writing this, supposedly this was just sort of a widespread belief that sperm whales are thought to have extremely regular migratory patterns, much like uh, herring or swallows. Uh, and then there's a footnote where he says, um, you know, actually, since I wrote this, scientific research bears it out. Um. <laughs> yes, that um, that a chart is currently being made in, you know, 1851 of the uh, migratory patterns uh, of the sperm whale that will allow us to, or, you know, allow, I guess, whalers, people yeah. in general, to predict the patterns of movement of the sperm whale. But all of this is not yet fully developed. Um, it's also worth drawing back to the previous, uh, or the chapter before the previous, the chapter Moby Dick, where right now we're, uh, we're seeing an argument that, no, Ahab can totally find Moby Dick's specific location by looking at previous sightings, by looking at where whales go generally. But at the same time, Moby Dick has been credited with the possibility of swimming through the very heart of the earth in yeah. previous chapters and with um, with being, uh, what was it, universal through space, like found anywhere and everywhere, being, um, I'm forgetting the word for Omnipresent? it. Omnipresent? More or less, yeah. Being, um, being just, you know, not bound to a singular location. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, it, extension through space as infinity is extension through time. Yes, it is definitely the case that Ahab is assuming that is not true in order to carry out these calculations. Yes. Which, I don't think it necessarily means that Ahab doesn't believe that Moby Dick might have those powers, but he is, he is acting as if Moby Dick does not have those powers. I think on some level because he needs to be doing something towards the end of finding Moby Dick. Yeah, he Ahab needs to assume that his enemy can be found and can be slain. Or, you know, as as he put it much earlier, I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. And yay, there is a certain justice in this that I, sh you know, for if the sun could do that, then I could do the other. Yeah, so it's it's Basically, uh, uh, I think that, you know, the question of, of Moby Dick's possible supernatural powers and whether Ahab might believe in those things, I think it is still up in the air. Um, I, because, uh, I Or think, whether he believes in them, but is going to do this anyways. Right, exactly. Because I, I think as long as, like, any degree of uncertainty as to whether Moby Dick can teleport... <laughs> It, it's technically not teleporting. Uh, the way the way that Ishmael talks about it, he does suggest that Moby Dick is swimming through the earth, but he also suggests that it can be done instantaneously, so I think that's teleporting. Uh, I think that it just makes Moby Dick imminent. You know, like original sin. Oh, okay, alright, alright. Just present throughout the creation. Fair enough. Um. Anyway, like, I think it's clear, um, especially... From like just the way that um, what Ahab is doing here is, is talked about, that if Ahab thought there was like an infinitesimal chance that mm, charting Moby Dick yeah. would do him any good, even if he was like pretty convinced that it wouldn't, he would still be doing all of this. Yeah, and he's he's also setting forth a path to, you know, get them to 
the what is called the season on the line there's a specific region of i believe the pacific where uh sperm whales are known to go in a particular time of year and that this region is uh is where moby dick can be most likely found during that time of year however ahab and the pequod and all the crew left nantucket during the season so they're not going to get there this year they're going to have to wait a year to actually be able to hunt there so uh ahab has this charted trace over the um you know over the whole oceanic voyage to the location the season to the season on the line in what is it the equatorial regions of the pacific ocean according to notes uh yeah yeah looks like it. um yeah the uh so the line must be the equator yes um yes i think that's right um so yeah the season on the line is is both a time and a place um it's the time of year when whales are in this uh this equatorial zone um and and can sort of reliably be found um and uh so so basically there is this idea that most likely if they encounter moby dick it's gonna be during the season on the line but ahab is not willing to just say okay that's when we'll see him and like kind of give up on trying to trace him until then he wants to do everything he possibly can to still run into moby dick on the way to the season on the line he's maximizing his chance of rolling moby dick in the whale gotcha (laughs) oh my god yeah sorry i just i thought of that and i had to put that evil out into the world via a podcast (laughs) so uh yeah you're all you're all accessories now in my terrible terrible decisions um but yeah ignoring the speaking of the whale gotcha and the um and the vague predictability that maybe the season on the line will let uh will be the place where ahab can find one whale in the entire ocean Mm -hmm. and you know to be fair it's a very recognizable whale as ismail points out moby dick is white humped crooked mean nasty like he's a very specific whale so yes that that should help you know uh there was that whole thing where um whenever people start to describe uh moby dick they have like some specific physical thing that is unique to him but it's a different one than every other person has brought up so far during the whole like uh knights and squires sequence oh yeah 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 and that that kind of being the thing that proves that they're all talking about the same whale is that like everyone has different qualities of him that they all also it's not like one guy says oh yeah the white whale and everyone else is like oh yeah the white whale it's like oh he's white and he's all this other stuff and we all agree on that stuff yes yes it's all of them can tell they have seen the same whale even if they remembered different specific elements because no other whale is all of these things um but uh i will point out that speaking of that whale being all of these things um the metaphor ishmael uses uh is for moby dick being in that region sometimes is that uh moby dick had been periodically described lingering in those waters for a while as the sun in its annual round loiters for a predicted interval in any one sign of the zodiac yeah first of all that's just a real cool metaphor and then uh, or you know simile and then secondly uh I... it's the sun yeah no it is totally of 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 note uh to compare moby dick to the sun um it kind of goes along with like the just the general idea that like in some way Moby Dick is is a divine figure or yeah. like is 
everything. Um. <sighs> so yeah, there's also, you know, brief discussion of the various trade winds which uh, might blow Moby Dick into the devious, devious zigzag world circle of the Pequod's circumnavigating wake, which I just think is a cool phrase. Yeah. Yeah, as long as we're getting down into language, I also want to talk about, like, the way that the way that Ahab is thinking about, um, you know, the increased probability of encountering Moby Dick on the season of the line, um, uh, uh, it says, uh, where Ahab's chances of accomplishing his object have hitherto been spoken of, allusion has, allusion has only been made to whatever wayside antecedent extra prospects were his, ere a particular set time or place were attained, that is, the season on the line, when all possibilities would become probabilities, and, as Ahab fondly thought, every possibility the next thing to a certainty. Uh, which, I mean, you know, the gotcha comparison is obviously a joke, but like... <laughs> But this is a gambler's mindset, right? Where he's saying, like, okay, this is where it will become more likely. Therefore, it's definitely going to happen there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like, that. It, this has to happen sometime if I can just jimmy the odds just a little bit in my favor. Yes. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Uh, speaking of Ahab's way of thinking about this, uh, he has such a... There's, like, a little bit of sort of... Um, Ishmael's, uh, you know, free and direct discourse implying Ahab's, uh, Ahab's sort of mindset or words. And if I not tallied the whale, Ahab would throw himself back in reverie. Ahab would mutter to himself, as after poring over his charts till long after midnight, he would throw himself back in reveries. Tallied him, and shall he escape? His broad fins are bored and scalloped out like a lost sheep's ear. Like this idea that he has an ownership of the white whale because, uh, because of their connection to each other. And... I have to say, uh, if there's one of them who has been physically marked in a way that doesn't grow back, such that the other can recognize them, it's not Moby Dick. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Like, uh, Ahab, it is much more true that Moby Dick has tallied Ahab than that Ahab has tallied Moby Dick. Um, but, but I think that the way that Ahab thinks about it, like, th those are, like, equivalent if, yeah if one of those things is true surely the other somehow also has to be yeah and it's also i think a pun because tallied can also mean added up and he has been tallying moby dick in the sense of adding up all these sightings and elements yeah um, he's been he has almost certainly been doing some very complicated math over these charts yes there's also a really uh in my version which i can show you because we're in the same place i just have a beautiful illustration of ahab uh, over the charts with the uh, illumination. We need, we need to put this on the Twitter, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So I dope. have this ambition that I'm going to post pictures of all of the pictures in Ben's book on Twitter, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, although our, our cover image for the podcast is taken from the woodcuts in Ben's copy. Yep, from um, the, uh, I believe, from the title one. Like the, the, the one cover. that gets used on the cover. Yeah, they're actually, I don't know if we've mentioned this before on the cast, but uh, they're woodcuts from a, like, 1933 edition of Moby Dick, um, that were, are just really beautiful, you know, black and white woodcuts, uh, that my edition has as well as illustrations, and I just really love them. Yeah, to be clear, Ben doesn't have a 1933 edition. Oh, no, 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 this Dick. is a reprint. This is a, yeah. it's a nice reprint, but it's a reprint. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that fancy, but oh. I love it. Yeah, it. no, it's great. Um, yeah. the, the, the picture also, like, it very clearly shows this evocative thing that's in the first paragraph about like the light over Ahab's head 
swinging around and because mm. of the light swinging and, and the sort of like craggy shape of Ahab's brow, it's like inscribing these complicated lines on his forehead as he is inscribing complicated lines on these charts. Mm, yeah. <sighs> also, he's wearing like a, a cool suit in this picture. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. He, he's, he's sharp dressed. But uh, yeah, no, I, I will say I have a certain personal uh, nostalgia for this kind of marking out on charts because prior to getting a gps system my grandparents in their like little sailing boat in maine would have a bunch of charts that they would pull out of the uh pull out of the cabinet in the the ship's cabin and like roll out and uh like the same lined depth charts and talking about okay we can see this rock and so on the the family joke was that we knew every rock in the local harbors by touch <laughs> or rather by the sound of it hitting the hull uh yeah. we'd only as I remember, there's only a few actual, like, crash stories in that boat's lifetime, but uh, they were pretty spectacular. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, so I have I have a very strong, if, like, childhood sense of uh, looking at these, like, you know, very pale blue and, you know, modern charts, not, like, 19th century charts, but, uh, you know, pale blue and green charts, uh, which are, like, laid out, and then you have, like, a straight edge and so on, and you're busy figuring out a... Uh, course that you can path between things yeah anyways ahab is clearly doing that but at like you know pro gamer level <laughs> yes um and uh and this kind of uh you talked about the, the part of this you, you quoted the bit where um ishmael is kind of writing ahab's thoughts and uh that leads into uh, the, ahab's thoughts <laughs> yeah so the second part of this chapter um now that this whole like you know, all, all this stuff about uh, sea charts and, and the possibility of tracing Moby Dick has been discussed. Um, it moves on to talking about um, this bizarre thing that happens to Ahab sometimes in the middle of the night. Well, it, I think it's, it's, it would be fair to say that it's talking about, like, how his obsession, which first comes out in the chart and going down and marking out this possibility, how it comes out in other ways. Like, I think there's a clear... Oh. Yes. trace there yes. and it's it's interesting because it goes via you know um talking about him in his reveries over the charts and then you know and here his mad mind would run on a breathless race um and talk about how he basically tire tuckers himself out over these charts like just thinking so much about how he's gonna get moby dick his uh his rhapsodies of revenge and basically it doesn't stop at all when he goes to sleep yes uh in fact, the, the specific phrase, which I love this little bit of alliteration, what trances of torments does that man endure who is consumed with one unachieved revengeful desire? He sleeps with clenched hands and wakes with his own bloodied nails in his palms. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, no, um, the, the image this gives is a lot. And, uh, and, and then there's this, like, this specific, like, phenomenon that happens to Ahab. That's a good way of describing it. It's a phenomenon. Yes. Where, essentially, Ahab has uh, exhausting and intolerably vivid dreams about, presumably, about hunting Moby Dick. Um, uh, and they, they, they drive him into this state of anguish uh, to the point that I'm going to quote again. These spiritual throes in him heaved his being up from its base, and a chasm seemed opening in him, from which forked flames and lightnings shot up. 
so, so that happens while he's sleeping. And then uh, Ahab leaps out of bed and, like, runs out of the room. Uh, and uh, Ishmael's interpretation of what is happening at this time is complicated and weird and we need to explicate it. Yeah, it's it's definitely complicated and weird. Also, you dropped a clause from the the, the, the chasm in his mind, which is that it's also uh, accursed fiends beckoned him to leap down from among them. When this hell in himself ye- yawned beneath him, that's when he shouts and jumps up. Like, there's this idea that it's like the internal recesses of his mind becoming visible to him. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely... Uh, I, I remember... Um this very vivid image in an earlier chapter of like, uh, you know, I, I think we, we theorized that this was sort of Adam, but like some kind of like king at the bottom of the world. Yeah. And like that pit somehow is like contained in Ahab or like Ahab accesses it through his soul and through his obsession. Um, well, his soul and his obsession well, is not exactly how I would put it or how Ishmael would put it. Right. So, okay. Let's get to the, the metaphysical details of what Ishmael believes is happening at these times. And yes, when Ahab has a nightmare, it's not just a nightmare. It's this elaborate metaphysical event. Yes. So I, I think, again, the best thing to do is just to, to read what Ishmael says or, you know, what Melville wrote, whatever, um, and then, like, go into it. Okay. So, uh, for at such times, crazy Ahab the scheming, unappeasedly steadfast hunter of the white whale, this Ahab that had gone to his hammock, was not the agent that so caused him to burst from it in horror again. The latter, the agent, was the eternal living principle or soul in him, and in sleep, being for the time dissociated from the characterizing mind, which at other times employed it for its outer vehicle or agent, it, the soul, spontaneously sought escape from the scorching contiguity of the frantic thing the mind, of which for the time it was no longer an integral. But as the mind does not exist unless leagued with the soul, therefore it must have been that in Ahab's case, yielding up all his thoughts and fancies to his one supreme purpose, that purpose, by its own sheer inveteracy of will, forced itself against gods and devils into a kind of self-assumed, independent being of its own. Um... Nay, could grimly live and burn, while the common vitality to which it was conjoined fled horror-stricken from the unbidden and unfathered birth. So, what Ishmael is saying is that in a normal person, there's the soul, which is a sort of, like, vital force, and there's the mind, which is, you know, your thoughts, and these two things are linked, and and, uh, the mind can't exist without the soul. However, in Ahab's case, his his obsession has, like, created his mind into such a being that when the soul is so terrified of that mind that it leaps out of his body... No, 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 leaps up with his body. Oh, yes, sorry. The body you're right, you're right, It's you're implying right. that his mind sits there in the hammock burning without him. Like, his his mind is still there. Yes, and, and so the, the soul and body leap out of the hammock, away from the terrifying mind, but it doesn't kill him. It doesn't, like, destroy the, his mind. His mind just sits there, twisting. Yeah, no, the, um, like, and there's some really interesting things here which come up again in two chapters, which is why I'm glad this is, like, the collect, the, I'm really glad at the cluster of chapters we've got here, because, so there's, 
This phrase, um, then what seemed Ahab rushed from his room was for the time but a vacated thing, a formless somnambulistic being, a ray of living light to be sure, but without an object to color, and therefore a blankness in itself. He's saying that the soul doesn't have any, it does not characterize, doesn't have the characterizing mind. So Ahab, when Ahab is afraid, when Ahab experiences this nightmare, he's not Ahab. He doesn't have the character of Ahab. No, Ahab's character is not touched by fear but by anger is not you know frightened by nightmares or trauma but is rather the thing that like turns that to pure revenge like in some level i think you can read this in multiple ways but one of them is to say ishmael doesn't think ahab is capable of fear not ahab ahab's soul is capable of fear his body is capable of fear but his mind is untouchable yeah um and uh it's i i think yeah, like, I think on some level, Ahab's soul and body are just as much tools that are being used by this, like, fundamental thing, which is Ahab, which is also Ahab's monomania. Like, he, there, there is no Ahab yes, his, but the monomania at this point. Yeah, his mind has completely been shaped by it. And so just as, just as every... Every man on the Pequod and the Pequod itself and all the stuff on it are all tools that Ahab is is manipulating for his ends. That is like equally true of his body and the vital force that that motivates it. I think so. And there was something you noticed uh, prior to the this recording, which was that um, so one thing that the that Ishmael says is that the very throbbing of his life spot of Ahab's life spot became insufferable anguish. That's a reference to a wailing term. Yes, so a whale's life spot, uh, this is right out of PowerMobyDick.com. Thank you, PowerMobyDick.com. A whale's life spot is an internal mass of coiled arteries that, when pierced by a lance aimed behind the fin, cause rapid death. So this is this is an anatomical feature of a whale that whalers would be familiar with because it's, it's you know, it's the spot you want to hit. Um, and so you know he doesn't say the very throbbing of his heart or of his brain or any other part of human anatomy it's his life spot yes Um, that that is throbbing because of the whirling round and round in his blazing brain of his frenzies of uh revenge and imagination yeah the 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 like physical and spiritual anatomy of ahab here is just fascinating and yes. disturbing yeah no ahab is ahab is literally and we'll, we'll see this again later in this chunk of chapters in this recording i want there's really something i want to talk about with starbuck later on mm-hmm. but um the idea that ahab is somehow like through his knowledge and his mind uh transcended normal human experience and transcended the normal sort of fil- philosophical metaphysical spiritual shape of the human and now he's this like you know he's quote uh um you know god help the old man thy thoughts have created a creature in thee and he whose intense thinking thus makes him a prometheus a vulture feeds upon that heart forever that vulture the very creature he creates it's like frankenstein's creature but it's it's ahab's own mind and his monomania that feed on his soul and his body and the rest of him like fuel. Yeah, and you know, I honestly think that that there's a possibility that Frankenstein is one of the is is like a, yeah, a reference temporally. Yeah. Be, but yeah, so like certainly it was published before. It's it's 
possible that Melville had read it. Also, because, like... Uh, the based... combination of Creature and Prometheus? Yeah, that sort of, like, is suggestive to my mind. And this is specifically... This is Prometheus being presented as someone who creates a creature. And, um, I mean, that is... So, in mythology, Prometheus doesn't create human beings, but he sort of... It, there are versions that do have Prometheus creating human beings, but he requires the breath of life from the gods to make them move. Okay, yeah. So, 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 uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, the exact, uh, as with all myths, yes. um, there, there are different versions, but basically, uh, this element of the myth of Prometheus is that he, um, he makes human beings, uh, in, in, this is, uh, I, I think it's, let's see, it's that he and Epimetheus have access to, like, basically a pool of, like, like abilities, like qualities, right? Oh, do you not know this story? No, I don't know this one. Okay, I'm gonna look it up uh, just to make sure that I'm not uh, totally making things up. Well, um, but the the story, as I recall it, is basically that um, Prometheus and Epimetheus, uh, brothers, titans, um, are given the task of uh, creating. Uh, Pr- Prometheus it has the task of creating human beings. And Epimetheus has the task of creating animals. Um, and uh, Epimetheus basically takes all the good stuff. Like um, wings and things. Yeah. So, so like, all, all you know, claws and, and speed and, and, yeah, wings and, you know, all of these uh, physical abilities that animals have and, and human beings do not. Um, and so by the time Prometheus gets to the stuff, uh, there is not much left for humans. Um, which is why he decides to steal fire from the gods so that humans will be able to, like, survive, even though they don't have sharp teeth or whatever. Um, and it's for the sin, or sin, that's a very Christian way of looking at it, but it is for the the crime of stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humans that Prometheus is uh, chained to a rock and punished eternally by having a vulture eat his liver um, every day. Uh you know, it's it's interesting because that's that's definitely different from the the version of the story I know, where the um, giving fire to mankind is after uh, the gods extinguish all fire on Earth for the prank Prometheus plays, where he presents two bags of uh, possible thing. You know, different stories, right? Yeah, I I think that uh, that this is clearly one of those things where there's a bunch of different uh, versions. Yeah, a bunch of different stories of Prometheus, and you can kind of knit them all together mm-hmm. um but uh the point being i i think uh i think yes this so you don't need uh frankenstein here to talk about prometheus as the creator of a, of a creature um who is then punished in some way for that creation um but i think it's interesting to think about whether because uh you know um in Frankenstein, the sort of uh, theft of the power of God, so the like theft of fire, and the creation of new man are the, the same thing um, in a way that they're not in the myth. And then uh, in addition, I'm thinking about um, the, the phrase, the unbidden and unfathered birth, mm. uh, which is a the the idea that the what has been created in Ahab what Ahab has created is this like monstrous thing that was not like 
was not engendered in the normal way, but was like created by some sort of some sort of fucked up process, you know? Yep, yep. Um So yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a while I don't think it's necessarily intentional, you know, obviously we can't talk about that, like maybe you could go through the archive of Melville and be like, hey, did he read Frankenstein? Did mm-hmm. he like Frankenstein? But there's definitely this idea that like there's an image of the the parent, which is the body and the soul, running from this monstrous creation of theirs after they've created it by accident, and like just having this moment of shock and horror while the thing is left behind. But you know, there's a really deep, different valence when it's the mind and the body and soul are this sort of mute animal that's being chased out by its power, by its by its you know the torment of being in its presence. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Ahab, doing great. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it is like entirely supported by this chapter to think that Ahab is not human anymore. Y- yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely do things are happening. I I do feel like I need to bring up that you did when you first found out about this and when talked to me about it. You did mention that it's very much like a thing from Kingdom Hearts. Do you want to do you want to expand uh, on that? So I don't actually understand the metaphysics of Kingdom Hearts very well, but Does I anyone? was uh, I'm sure there are people out there who do. I mean, Kingdom Hearts is light. I'm told that's actually all you really need to understand. Um, but the the point being that, yeah, in Kingdom Hearts, um, people's, like, uh, heart and... Uh, uh, body? Body and, and uh, like... There, there's, like... I think there's, like, three elements of a person that can be disaggregated from each other. Oh, yes, the body, the intellect, and the soul. I, I don't actually know what the words for those are in Kingdom Hearts. I also have the impression that the words that are used in English for these elements in Kingdom Hearts are not used consistently in, like, translation. But the point being, in Kingdom Hearts, a single person can be split into a heartless and a nobody, and that kind of feels like what's happening to Ahab here. <laughs> where there's, like, because, like, a um, a, a heartless, as, as seen in kingdom hearts one if i recall correctly is basically a like mindless wait no shit i don't know even okay no i'm not even gonna try this is stupid but <laughs> the, the point is that like a single being being like disaggregated into their sort of like mind and soul and both of those things having independent existence reminded me of kingdom hearts yeah no that's fair and what I will say is that the um, the classic Gnostic tri- uh, triune section of humankind is body, corporality, uh, intellect, and uh, spirit. Yeah, or... That is exactly what we've got here. Yes. Ahab is Ahab's body and his soul, which ironically are the first and third in the list of like increasing subtlety and importance. The body and soul have both decided to fuck off while the mind does its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just body and soul look at each other start inching for the door (laughs) yeah yeah so meanwhile let's uh having talked about ahab's weird psychological underpinnings let's instead talk about whether whales are big (laughs) yeah so uh the next chapter uh is chapter 45 the affidavit um and uh this is this Not chap- a narrative chapter. No. This chapter is, as the title suggests, this is basically Ishmael trying to make as airtight a statement as he possibly can. He is trying to argue as if in a court of law um, 
that it, it would actually be possible uh for the events of this narrative to come about yes exactly um so it, which is kind of funny because he's he is uh he is alluding to what will happen at the climax of the book as he puts it the catastrophe um but he we don't know what that is yet i mean we can guess like hmm we might encounter Moby Dick. That, that might be what happens. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. I'm sure that the book ends with Ahab going, well, I may not have found Moby Dick, but the real Moby Dick was the friends I made along the way. <laughs> and then they hit a rock. Oh, my God. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, so so this is... Uh... It's, it's Ahab... Uh, sorry. It's Ishmael sort of putting forward, here are real world examples and we do mean real world a number of these are historical examples that melville himself like researched in the course of writing this book here are examples of these events occurring and it's interesting to think about like the the fictional stance of this so on the one hand it's presenting a you know it's ishmael arguing it's not that unreasonable to think that the same person could find the same whale multiple times or that a whale could you know be capable of revenge mm-hmm. but at the same time this is aimed kind of you know it's aimed at the reader as much by melville as by ishmael maybe you know i i don't want to say i know for sure what melville's doing here quite yet but it is kind of Ishmael making the argument that while the events of this narrative, which, you know, as I'm sure the reader knows, and as, you know, any reader through time would know, are fiction, but they're still plausible. These are things that could occur. A whale could do this stuff. There's some very interesting arguments, actually, about what the early, like, fictional novel was read as. When someone writes, like, a, a novel about their, you know, Jane Austen, when she writes about uh, Liz Bennett and her experiences, these are all meant to be very realistic. The realist novel is supposed to be events that could happen to you, or, you know, for a given value of a relatively rich, educated, upper-class version of you in these societies. But that is who Austen imagines as her Yes, reader, exactly. So. And there's a question of, okay, are the... are Was a reader expected to treat this as, this is a, you know, the names have been changed, but this is totally a thing that happened? Or is this supposed to be treated as, well, this is the kind of thing that could happen? And there's some really interesting, you know, literary criticism and theory about basically how did the novel initially get received? Did people read it as, you know, oh, this is obviously a tell-all, but, you know, they've changed the names or hit or censored the names? Or did they read it as, ah, this is just like those tell-alls that we know were also published at the time of people's diaries and things. And the reason I bring this up is that I think that a large part of the sort of fictional purpose of this chapter is complicated, because it could be read as Melville just straightforwardly saying, look, this seems fantastical, but this is all believable. This is all stuff that could happen. But I think it's actually being a little subtler than that. I think Ishmael is arguing that, but what Melville is doing is maybe something a little bit more developed. Okay, and what is that? What is Melville doing? I mean, I'm not sure is the problem. But like, (laughs) I I don't think that Melville is just trying to convince us this is totally a thing that could happen. I think possibly he's trying to convince us that Ishmael was convinced this was a reasonable goal. Because I think there's a line about like, allegory and symbolism and like the idea that people could accuse me of writing this this yeah, narrative yeah. i've got it um 
So ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world, that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or, still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. So yeah, Ishmael is saying, no, this is not allegorical. Moby Dick is not a symbol. Moby Dick is a big fucking whale. Yeah, and it, it is, I think... Genuinely kind of funny that so much effort has been gone to by Ishmael to convince us that whiteness mm. is a is kind of a symbol, has some kind of yeah, meaning. There's, there's something inherently hideous about whiteness. There's a reason why you look at the whale and think, ah! But he is now at pains to establish that the whale couldn't possibly be a fucking symbol. I don't mean anything by it. This was just a thing that happened, guys. Yeah, it's... And, you know, that has to be intentional on yes. Melville's part. He knows what he's doing. Um, and that that tension there between is Moby Dick just an animal or is Moby Dick symbolic or maybe God or the devil? is What is Moby Dick is not being made more clear or more believable by this chapter. It's not making this a more reasonable narrative. It's making it a richer and more complicated one. I do think that, that one possible synthesis of these ideas yeah. that I, I think one can get out of the whiteness of the whale in this chapter is that Moby Dick, in, for Ishmael, factually exists and also factually is a symbol. Mm, that, like, it's, it's an objective symbol. Yes, and, and that is, I think, the idea of the objectivity of the meaning of whiteness is a lot of what he was mm, struggling with in that yes. chapter. Um, and uh, the, the idea that this, the, the unknowability that is so important to Moby Dick is not the unknowability of like, well, we don't know how to interpret this, or it, that's partially it, but it's also there are secrets here. There is perhaps gnosis hidden within this whale. There's true knowledge that is not available to us and that we are in awe of, but it's not allegory or fable. It's not trying to say some pat moral lesson. This is just a thing that is and contains within itself an unknowable truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do think it's also amazing and, like, uh, you know, uh, speaks both to Ishmael and, you know, to what he expects of his audience, uh, that he does need to go to this lengths to convince us that actually encountering Moby Dick is, like, possible and plausible, but he didn't need to do any of that shit to convince us that Ahab's soul and body were fleeing his mind. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is, Ishmael's a weird dude. He's just like, yeah, no, I, I knew someone who, um, his mind and uh, soul were having kind of a, a messy divorce. It's normal. This is a thing that happens. But, but I will need to convince you, because, you know, you live on land, not on the sea, that uh, whales are big and whales are mean. <laughs> yes. So I, let's go into Ishmael's actual argument here and, yes, like, yes, the yes. things he's trying to establish. Um, so his his first point is that he, he knows of, of, he can name specific instances where a whale has been first struck by a harpoon, escaped, and then, after a while, encountered again by the same person and killed by that person. Um, by the, by, with, like, he, he cites such details as, like, there being a, a, a harpoon recovered from a whale's body with the same private mark on it as the harpoon that killed it. Um, and, uh... Yeah, no, his, his examples of this are, are pretty impressive. For example, one of them was someone who then spent, like, 
multiple years on shore, uh, you know, in, in, like, doing colonial shit in Africa before coming back to whaling and killing a whale that he'd previously injured. Um, during which time, as Ishmael puts it, the whale would have circumnavigated the globe multiple times on its migrations. Yeah. Um, now, now I will say, this, this paragraph, as with basically everything in this chapter, but this one maybe more so than the others, because there aren't, like, citations of, like, named mm, yeah, yeah. cases, this does have to just be taken on Ishmael's say-so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that's a little funny about this chapter, is that Ishmael is, is trying to establish credibility here, but he is doing it entirely by telling us about stuff he knows about things that have happened with whales. And it's like, okay, if you were just telling us a tall tale, you could be making all this shit up. Yeah, yeah, no, Ishmael... Ishmael's going to an, ex an extended length to tell us about, no, 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 seriously, this one time at band camp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. So, um, so there's, there's this, people have re-encountered whales that they attacked before and, and killed them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, then he wants to establish that there are, there are cases where uh, whales have, like, specific whales have become recognizable and, like, known and famous. Um, and, and have, in fact, been, uh, specifically hunted down. Yep. Uh, once they became famous in this way. Celebrity whales that are yes. extremely big and powerful. And in fact, there's a really cute anecdote. I, I say cute, but it's, it's also a little bit distressing of, like, um, particular, uh, whales. I think, was it, uh, uh... Ronaldo Rinaldini? That might not be a whale. That might be a person. It's unclear in the way he said it. Yeah, I no, uh, it Ronaldo, I can cite that for you. Thank Ronaldo you. Rinaldini is the bandit hero of a series of German novels very popular around 1800. Ah. Rinaldini was a sort of Corsican Robin Hood, says PowerMobie.com. Cool, cool, yeah. So there's this idea that, like, um, fishermen who see a particularly famous whale will, like, you know, doff their caps or touch them, but not in any way go out to hunt that whale, lest they, you know, it's it's like knowing someone who's both famous and uh, prone to punching people in the face. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he does also uh, cite the, the names of specific famous whales, which uh, I, I, so, um, I, I, I can't be absolutely certain about this because the way that PowerMobyDick.com cites this is a little unclear. Um, but they, so the, the names of famous whales that Ishmael mentions are Tim or Tom, New Zealand Jack, Morkon, or Morkin, I don't know, and Don Miguel. And, um, PowerMobyDick.com describes Tim or Tom and New Zealand Jack as, in both cases, a rogue sperm whale, um, and describes Morkon and Don Miguel as a rogue sperm whale possibly invented by Melville. I, I think that strongly implies that Timur Tom and uh, New Zealand Jack were are historically attested outside of uh, Ishmael's account. Yes, it's just that PowerMobyDick.com declines to give the citation, yeah. which is unhelpful. But, Thanks. But, okay, no, no, more important question. So which of these is your favorite? Well, hmm, okay. So, so, there's Timur Tom, thou famed leviathan scarred like an iceberg. There's New Zealand Jack, thou terror of all cruisers that crossed their wakes in the vicinity of the Tattoo Land. There's Morquan, king of Japan, whose lofty jet, they say at times, assumed the semblance of a snow-white cross against the sky. And Don Miguel, a Chilean whale, marked like an old tortoise with mystic hieroglyphics upon the back. I think I'm most into the idea of Don Miguel uh, being marked with mystic hieroglyphics. That sounds... 
I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, obviously he could be speaking metaphorically, but uh, I wouldn't put it past Ishmael to honestly believe that there are messages written on the back of this whale. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm mildly inclined towards Morquan because uh, the idea of a whale that just spouts a cross is ridiculous and amazing. Like, I don't know how physically that would work. So just a whale that does a symbolism in the sky is very funny to me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Especially in the context of this story. That is pretty cool. But no, I think, I think probably Don Miguel's the best just because that, that hieroglyphics thing, like you say, real cool. Yes. Um, Moby Dick is of course, number one whale in all our hearts. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so, um, so there's that point that there are there is such a thing as an infamous whale um and there have been there has been at least one case of someone who actually set it out to uh to hunt that whale and and succeeded yeah Um, i will say also he says here are four whales as well known to the students of cetacean history as marius or Scylla to the classic scholar and i just really love that the idea that there's a specific subcategory of cetacean history and it's not just ishmael yeah i mean clearly he means like the like whalers people who know yes whale but, stories but they're not like scholars of history they're people who hear hear things in whaling pubs or whatever but he real much like previously in the book he really wants to establish that that's a, a body of knowledge and experience and like scholarship and even like you know nobility yes in the world yeah ishmael is very concerned with the like the knowledge creating practices of whalers um uh so, um, then he also wants to, uh, establish a few more points. Um, let's see. Uh, uh one is that, um, it's really, really dangerous to be a whaler. Yes. And uh, this, he, he wants to make sure people understand that, like, yes, your average person, your average non-seagoing person does have some idea that whaling is very dangerous, but they don't really understand it. Uh, they don't really understand how frequently people die while whaling uh, because, um, I'll just quote, not one in 50 of the actual disasters and deaths by casualties in the fishery ever finds a public record at home, however transient and immediately forgotten that record. So, like, basically, uh, you know... It's way off around the other side of the world happening to, you know, young men with no uh, particular connection except by very infrequent mail. Yeah, so so he is, he is basically saying... Uh, uh, not more than 2% of whaling deaths are ever even known about on shore, even in the most, like, uh, minor way. Yeah, and this is, this kind of, the unknowability of the whaling ground from Nantucket is something that's come up a number of times in, in the books, because at the same time, Nantucket is, like, this major whaling hub, but there's things like that, um, chapel full of, uh, stones to whalers believed loss, but, you know, never, not, uh, definitely. Yes. Um, or the idea of, uh, you know, mail being so infrequent that it's impossible to really be certain when and where someone has seen Moby Dick, except by very careful cross-examination. Yes. Um, which this leads him to a statement that I also think is worth reading. For God's sake, be economical with your lamps and candles. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Yeah, no, it's that. Honestly, that's just like coming out of nowhere. Ishmael's just like, by the way, 
Yeah, I mean... Your economy is driven by our blood. <laughs> yeah. Back to Wales. Yes. Uh, so then, um, uh, the further thing that he wants to establish is that... Uh, Whales are big. Whales are big, they are powerful enough to sink a ship, and they sometimes do it on purpose. Yes. Um, and he, and this is another one of those cases where uh, he, he is citing... Like, a, this is a real historical incident that we know about because someone other than Melville wrote about it. Yes, in fact, um, so I think I may have said in a previous episode that this incident, the incident of um, Captain Pollard, um, whose ship, one of his multiple ships he lost was sunk by a whale. Melville did make friends with him later in life, but I was not actually aware of this. They, I don't believe, had met by the time this book was written. But he is cited as, like, a heroic individual in, um, you know, in this text. Uh, having read um, his first mate, his chief mate's uh, account of the tragedy of the Essex. Well, so there is this, so this may be uh, Ishmael and not Melville, but there is this claim, I have seen Owen Chase, who was chief mate of the Essex at the time of the tragedy. I have read his plain and faithful narrative. That's the real world book about the, sink, the, the wreck of the Essex that mm -hmm. tells us that Melville didn't make this all up. I have conversed with his son, and all this within a few miles of the scene of the catastrophe. So... I mean, if are are you totally sure that the person whom you think Melville knew was was Captain Pollard and not Owen Chase? Yes, because we know that uh, he wrote about having met Captain Pollard later, uh, at least at some point in life, because Pollard worked as a watchman on Nantucket, basically. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, and did not go to sea again after losing two ships. Yep. Uh poor guy. Yeah, and he quotes he quotes from Chase's book in which Chase uh, does strongly suggests that the whale the whale that sunk the Essex did it on purpose. Yes. Um, uh, quote, At all events, the whole circumstances taken together, all happening before my own eyes, and producing at the time impressions in my mind of decided, calculating mischief on the part of the whale, many of which impressions I cannot now recall, <laughs> induce me to be satisfied that I am correct in my opinion. So yes, Chase was was convinced that the whale that sunk the Essex was doing it in revenge for other whales hunted by the Essex from the same, like, pod. Yes. Or shoal, I think. Yes. Yes. Um. Uh, but yes, there's a number of italicized bits in the, um, in the quotation that include horrid aspect and revenge of the whale and the mysterious and mortal attack of the animal. Yeah, and uh, Ishmael is not so good as uh, modern writers often are to say, emphasis mine, but I think we can assume. Oh, yeah, no, I, I think that's pretty clear. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he cites a couple other cases of um, ships that have been sunk by whales. Sunk or even just, like, damaged. There's one that uh, is very amusing to me, which is that a, um, a captain... Uh, Commodore Basic... J? Is that who you're speaking of? Uh, no, here I'm thinking about uh, Lionel. Lionel Wafer. Ah, uh, 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 yes. Who, uh, who's... Um, or no, 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 not that one. Sorry. I'm thinking of a different thing. It's the... Uh... Ooh, where did I... I? No, I've lost track of this. That's that's less interesting to me in any case than um, the account of Captain DeWolf. Not so much because of the actual event, which is just that they bumped into a whale and got lifted up out of the water a bit and had to go back home and fix the book. But um, he's uh, Ishmael's uncle. Yep, and and 
It is literally true that the the historical person, John DeWolf, was Herman Melville's uncle. Oh. Yep. Oh. PowerMobyDick.com. <laughs> it gives you power over Moby Dick. <laughs> it does, you know, just, uh, I'm imagining like the fine print does not give you power over Moby Dick. <laughs> yes. The white whale is beyond the craft of man. Uh, but in any case, I do think that that's useful for establishing who Ishmael is, because he does have an uncle who's a captain and has like an, and a successful one at, at, as, as, as well. He's, you know, living near Boston. You know, Ishmael lets slip a number of little details about his life. And, I, you know, it's more evidence that he's maybe not... You know, he's a he's educated. He's been a schoolmaster. He, uh, you know, he has family who own boats. Yeah. Or sailboats. I suppose he doesn't technically necessarily own them, but you know, uh, Captain Bildag and Peleg both own part of the boat, as does uh, Ahab. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely one of those cases where we can kind of see a certain hint of uh, Ishmael's life outside of the narrative. And in, in this case, it's it's Melville's life. Yes. Um. <laughs> uh, but. Sorry, I'm still trying to find that example of. Uh, what's the What's the quality of the example that you're interested in? Um, it's the. Yo, you're right. It's Commodore J. It is Commodore J. I was wrong. It's the one who said, "Ah, a, a whale couldn't do anything to my boat." And then shortly after taking setting sail, whale shows up, whacks his boat, and then he has to take it back in. All pumps going at full full use to prevent from to prevent it from sinking because like every board came loose yeah i uh ishmael comments i am not superstitious <laughs> sorry i just <laughs> yes I... you are ishmael you were telling us about how captain ahab's soul mind and body were parting ways when he had a nightmare because you couldn't imagine ishmael being afraid of a thing sorry you could imagine ahab being afraid of a thing <laughs> I am not superstitious, but I consider the Commodore's interview with that whale as providential. Was not Saul of Tarsus converted from unbelief by a similar fright? I tell you, the sperm whale will stand no nonsense. And this is, this is another case where, um, I mean, in this case, not even Moby Dick. A different whale is being compared to God. Uh, because yeah. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, in case anyone doesn't know, that's the Apostle Paul, um, who became a a follower of Jesus after uh, basically experiencing a miracle. Um, and so uh, he, he is he is kind of saying uh, that uh, that this whale attack was, I mean, providential, meaning like miraculous, resulting yep. from divine intervention. To intended to convert someone to the belief that whales are big and strong. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's also examples of things like uh, later in the in the chapter of um, uh, a ship, the the Pusil Hall, an English ship, um, putting, uh, during a brief, like, lull in the fight, transferring the lines from harpoons stuck in a whale onto the main ship, and then the whole thing getting towed by the sperm whale. Yep. Uh, and also talks about how sperm whales will, not with a lot of examples of this, but apparently will... Uh, attack with malice aforethought will you know act tactically will um i believe it's mentioned here will go after the main ship rather than the boats that have launched it generally has enough apparent cognizance of what's going on to fight back yeah um and uh do you want to get to his final example oh his final example is great yeah so this this uh 
Ishmael's final example of, of the, the powers of the whale. Um, but he's not superstitious. It, yes, yes. Is, uh, it, it is, uh... Procopius. Yes, it is. He is, uh, taking this from the, the work of a Roman historian, um, who lived, uh, in, in the, in the 500s, uh, CE. Um. So the 6th century. Yes. And, uh, in, in, in this history, Procopius describes a sea monster, um, uh, which was captured in, in, uh, as... In the Propontis. Yes, in the Propontis. Um, so, uh, this is a, like a, a... Do, do you know exactly where that is? Uh, it's like off the, um, it's like, it's off the Mediterranean. It's not a, um, it's a, the Sea of Propontis or Sea of Mar... The Propontis or the Sea of Marmora is a sort of secondary body of water that's off the, um off the mediterranean and this is i believe a byzantine roman uh historian yes um and and uh, in procopius's account this sea monster was captured after having uh say, says ishmael after having destroyed vessels at intervals in those waters for a period of more than 50 years yes so in so this is a something or other that uh procopius claims had been you know terrorizing the sea lanes of the the byzantine romans for yeah, uh, half a century, and was captured. But, you know, no no details are given, at least by Ishmael, about the physical qualities of the sea monster. Presumably the, the historical note is on the effect of sea monster captured. Yes. Um, and uh, now, uh, obviously, to a modern mind, it's very easy to believe that Procopius made up a sea monster. Um, <laughs> but, but Ishmael is convinced that Procopius uh, only recorded or- the facts... Um, made up might be a little bit unfair. He might have been uh, he might have been told by people that oh yes we caught a sea monster. And, well, you know, there's there's various things that go on, but yes, Ishmael's being a euhemerist here. The assumption that any historical story has to have a basis in truth. Yes, uh, and uh, and Ishmael says that he's convinced because this creature destroyed ships, it must have been a whale, and he specifically thinks a sperm whale because. Um, Basically, uh, uh, he, Ishmael says, I had previously been convinced that the sperm whale couldn't have been in the Mediterranean. Um, even now, I don't really think that sperm whales spend a lot of time there. But uh, further investigations have recently proved to me that in modern times there have been isolated instances of the presence of the sperm whale in the Mediterranean. Um and uh specifically um that the skeleton of a sperm whale was found on the barbary coast yes and and uh he also gives the evidence that uh the there doesn't seem to be any brit which is what right whales eat uh in the propontis but the food of the sperm whale um which is uh giant squid uh he says squid or cuttlefish uh yes um does seem to be there. Uh, so he is basically saying uh, that, you know, if you put together the current scientific facts and the incontrovertible statement of Procopius, uh, there must have been a sperm whale that uh, for half a century stove the ships of a Roman emperor. Yep, of a, a Roman empire, which I find very funny as a way of referring to the Byzantines. Oh, a... Okay. The ships of a Roman empire. Mine says a Roman emperor. 
which is a little I'm, more believable, but... That's much less fun. Yeah. yeah. Like, the ships of a Roman emperor, sure, but the ships of a Roman empire is a very funny way to refer to the Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, no, I don't think he's saying that Procopius must be beyond, you know, must be beyond doubt, but he's saying that if there was a sea monster, like, you know, if Procopius's sea monster would have been a whale. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure why he brings this up, other than that he's just super excited about it, because it's not arguing for his position that, like, whales break ships, because that's his evidence that this is a whale. He starts with, if it destroyed ships, it must have been a whale. So that's not going to defend his proposition that whales destroy ships. That's his e- It's backwards. Yeah, I think he just got really excited about this story of a, you know, an ancient uh, yeah, sea monster and wanted to share it with us. Yeah, he, he wanted to show that his, his research had proven that, look, th- there's a whale in, in, in Procopius. Whales, everyone! Yeah. <sighs> that brings us to... Uh, chapter 46, Surmises. Yes. Uh, and this one's a relatively short chapter. It's like two pages and three pages in total, maybe two and a half. And it's, uh, it's about, you know, uh, why did Ahab do anything that wasn't specifically about hunting Moby Dick? Like, why would Ahab stop for other whales, basically? Yeah. Um, and this, this is, uh, yeah, as the as the title suggests, he is presenting this basically as his own speculation on what Ahab must have been thinking, uh, or why Ahab does the things he does. Um, so this is not. Uh, it's not like giving us Ahab's interiority directly, like it sometimes does. It's not presenting it as though Ishmael does know Ahab's thoughts. It's a it's Ishmael hypothesizing. It's surmising. Yes. Um. So. Uh, and in fact, he actually, so like there, there's a further argument that he develops in more detail, which I think is probably what Ishmael actually thinks is going on. But the first surmise he suggests is that, well, maybe Ahab was uh, too like attached to the, the sort of uh, habits of a whaleman to like totally abandon actual whaling uh, in pursuit of his revenge. Yep. Um, so like maybe... Uh, though he seemed ready to sacrifice all mortal interest to that one passion, maybe that's not the case. But clearly Ishmael is interested to present us with Ahab as a total monomaniac. And so he wants to he wants to give a justification for why Moby why Ahab would try to hunt non Moby Dick whales, why that would be justifiable as part of his singular purpose. Yes. Now, now there is a justification that immediately springs to mind that Ishmael says it would be refining too much, perhaps, even considering his monomania, uh, to say that it's all just because, well, he hates one sperm whale, maybe he just hates all... Is is Ahab a whale racist? <laughs> is he racist against sperm whales because of one bad sperm whale he hates? And then Ishmael thinks about it and says, no, I don't think so. I think he specifically hates Moby Dick. He's not just, he doesn't just hate sperm whales in general. Uh, you know, he's obviously not going to shed a tear for them. He doesn't have any particular, like, humane considerations. But his job was already whale murder, so it's not like that's a, you know, huge change. Yeah, but, um, but, uh, the argument that he develops at more length, um, and I think what we can kind of assume because of that, what Ishmael really thinks is going on. Uh, well, there's a thing I want to get back to on that, but yeah. Oh, uh, about whether this is what Ishmael really believes? Yeah, because there's, there's another line later, which is very interesting. But first, we should get through this bit. Yes. So, um, I think, you know, this is a 
I'm just going to read a little bit here because I think it expresses it very clearly. To accomplish his object, Ahab must use tools. And of all tools used in the shadow of the moon, men are most apt to get out of order. So essentially, the argument here is that in order to keep his crew in line and like keep them focused on the task of hunting Moby Dick, he needs to actually hunt regular sperm whales to... Um, well, there's a number of reasons. Yeah, basically, like, on some level, to just to, like, keep them busy. On some yeah. level, to motivate them, because they are, they, they do still care about money, even though they yes. are very excited about this revenge thing. Yeah, there's, and I think it's worth going a little bit into these different things, because they say a lot about at least what Ishmael thinks Ahab's mindset is like. And one of them's really interesting because there's they use Starbuck as like a case study mm -hmm. of how do you keep someone who we know is questioning this mission is like the most apt to get out of order of all the men. Mm -hmm. How do we get him in line? And there's this wonderful little bit that's very nicely connected to that whole body, mind, soul, uh, triple uh, triple space, which again is a very Gnostic division. Um, in this case, where um, you know, to quote, uh, to quote the book, um, however magnetic his ascendancy in some respects was over Starbuck, yet that ascendancy did not cover the complete spiritual man any more than mere corporeal superiority involves intellectual mastership. So it's, again, it's dividing, it's dividing the person into three very strongly with, you know, you can have corporeal mastership, that is to say, you've, you know, you can beat someone up, you can control someone, you can put them in chains. Then there's intellectual mastery, and that's what Ahab has over Starbuck. Starbuck's mind, his will, is coerced, is, is sort of driven to agree with Ahab because Ahab has defeated him in this way. But his soul, his spirit, still rebels against this and, you know, sort of has this moral objection because, you know, Starbuck's the good Christian. So Ahab has to keep uh, I think the line the the line is uh, keep his magnet at Starbucks brain, which is really really funny to me. Like I just imagine him with a horseshoe magnet magnet poking it at Starbucks head to keep him him on task. Yeah. Um. And it, but it's very much an intellectual control, whereas the soul is going to keep you know much like Ahab's own soul starts up and tries to run away before presumably he reels it back in. Um. Uh, Starbuck's soul is going to keep rebelling and pulling against this domination, and so Ahab has to keep layering on something that re reaffirms, I am in charge, it is unreasonable to turn against me. Yes. Um. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of different sort of tools he's presented as using for that, one of which is habit, keeping the whalemen doing what they normally do, so as to quote... Uh, um, get the sort of imaginative, uh, the strange imaginative impiousness that he'd sort of roused in them couldn't sustain itself. He can't, like, they can't just be driven solely by his ideology and drive, or they'll start to question it and turn aside. Yeah, and it's also, I think, on some level that if all they have to think about, if their only purpose on this mission becomes hunting Moby Dick, that that's going to be, like, terrifying and it's it's mm, not going yeah. to keep them like busy and effective which i think is what's implied by um this bit that the full terror of the voyage must be kept withdrawn into the obscure background 
for few men's courage is proof against protracted meditation unrelieved by a- action, mm. that when they stood their long night watches, his officers and men must have some nearer things to think of than Moby Dick. That makes sense. So yeah. basically, he doesn't want, I mean, on some level, he doesn't want them sitting idle around with nothing to think about. And even during the times when they are going to be kind of idle, like the night watches, he wants them to be thinking about seeing whales yeah like Money. regular yeah. stuff that they are used to thinking about and not like this sort of cosmic battle with a whale exactly ah so um you know and there is the line uh there's also this as you mentioned money they want money they get shares from this one you know in fact this was starbucks first issue not like i think starbucks first issue before the moral one was and what kind of money does revenge get you? What's that worth? And Ahab was incredibly dismissive of it. Ahab, Ahab is not a corporeal man. He has no interest in money, but uh, cash rules everything around him. And uh, he has to do something about it, lest uh, this lovely, um, a lovely pun here. They may scorn cash now, but let some months go by, and no prospective promise of it to them. And then this same quiescent cash all at once mutiny in them. This same cash would soon cashier Ahab. Yes. It's a cute pun. It is. Uh, I also think one thing that's kind of interesting about this is that it, it, uh, it give, he, in this paragraph where it's talking about how, you know, um, the sailors are if on some level going to care, still care about money. Um, the, uh, the quest of hunting Moby Dick is presented as, uh, basically a, a high-minded and holy mission like that of medieval knights. Well, specifically crusaders, because it's it's specifically the idea that the high-lifted and chivalric crusaders of old times were not content to traverse 2,000 miles of land to fight for their holy sepulchre without committing burglaries, picking pockets, and gaining other pious perquisites, by the way. Well, yeah, there's also the a certain generous knight errantism, mm, which yeah, is talking yeah. about, knight errantism is about, like, that. that's like what people are doing in, you know, like, Arthurian yeah, yeah, yeah. Legends. No, no, I know, I know what a knight errant is. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I was explaining it for our audience too, Ben. Sorry. It's okay. Sorry. Um, I got caught up. Anyway, yeah. So uh, I, I just, uh, I like that. I, I think that's cool kind of coming after this this part that's all about how Starbuck has like moral obligations to this, uh, that the other sailors' devotion to Ahab's cause is presented as a kind of moral or like holy mission. Um, in, in, uh, in metaphor. I don't think yeah, Ishmael is here. I think, act- the, I think the way I would put it is it's a romantic mission. It's yes. like they are inspired by the idea of the mission, but inspiration isn't going to keep the lights on or the candles lit, I get. The, the lamps lit? The lamps lit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, the last reason that Ahab needs to keep hunting regular whales is that he does have to be aware that by... Um, Basically, uh, by doing this thing where he's uh, revealed his his actual purpose, um, and sworn it, them all to it. Yes, it it could be argued that he was uh, uh, that he basically. Um, I mean, I'll just say what it says. In doing so, he had indirectly laid himself open to the unanswerable charge of usurpation. So, like on some level. Ahab has gotten out from under the other two captains, and, uh... Yeah, like, he was hired to hunt whales. Yes. He and, has shareholders. He does not own the Pequod entire. Yes. Um, and so he, he does have to make sure that 
the crew don't all say like, hey, wait a minute, you are like, you, you're stealing this ship and overthrow him. Yeah, specifically, a mutiny is normally something that you avoid by, if the, you know, crew are not uh, fond of you, by the fact that they will all be hung by the neck until dead, or hanged by the neck until dead, technically, um, if they, you know, mutiny. Mutiny is considered utterly unacceptable in these, in this, you know, in the law of the sea. However, it wouldn't be a mutiny. He would be the mutineer, not they, so they could just easily overthrow him if his own, you know, strength and allies were not sufficient, and they'd get away with it. It would be totally legal. So he's aware that his normal, the, the immense authority the captain normally has on a ship that is backed up by the might of law and society, he doesn't actually have here unless he can keep them, he has to keep them all in line by personal loyalty to him. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, we're seeing the, this, like, tripartite separation in terms of, like, what are the powers Ahab has to keep the crew mm. in line? That protection could only consist in his own predominating brain and heart and hand, which I think is, you know mind, soul, and body, basically, yeah. backed by a heedful, closely calculating attention to every minute atmospheric influence which it was possible for his crew to be subjected to. So he he really, uh, this is perhaps one reason, uh, you know, this isn't, uh, uh, no, this is explicitly said here. This is one reason maybe why Ahab does need to do all that forms and usages stuff, even though he doesn't really care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, he needs to, he, he really does need to, do everything he can to remind everyone of his authority all the time, because it's actually, in a certain sense, very shaky. Yes. However, for all these reasons, then, and others perhaps too analytic to be verbally developed here, Ahab plainly saw that he must still in a good degree continue true to the natural, nominal purpose of the Pequod's voyage. But, but, okay, but, what, what are the others too analytic to be verbally developed here? Like, what... What principles, what strange, you know, ideas that are too involved is Ishmael saying, oh, you know, just, they, they exist. There are other reasons why Ahab's doing this. I don't know what those are. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Um, I, it's possible that even Ishmael can't imagine, and he's just sort of saying, Ahab's mind is too complicated for me to explicate in this chapter. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's like, maybe by analytic, he just means, look, Ahab's smarter than I am. If he decided this was the right thing to do to get his way, he was right. Yeah. Like, there are, maybe there are, like, basically, this is, if, if you read it that way, this is basically saying, look, sure, Ahab's a monomaniac who acts in ways that make absolutely no sense except under the auspices of that monomania, but um, he's way smarter than I am, and he's incredibly competent. So if he does something, it must be correctly ga gauged to further that monomania. Yes. Yeah, so um, I think that's pretty that's much it. Um, most of it, you know, it's it's just say, uh, it does end with a cliffhanger. Yes. So yeah, we are we are ending this this episode on some very uh, exciting implications because the last sentence of this chapter says, "Well, first, first, what? it's it's he's constantly watching the water for you know spouts or for porpoises or any anything that you can see. Ahab himself is taking part in the watch, and this vigilance was not long without reward. So yeah, uh, next time along." The reward of vigilance, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I... We are getting sort of closer to narrative again. I think we're about to hit it. That 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 cliffhanger definitely implied it. Yeah, if we don't 
see, like, if we don't see at least movement towards hitting a whale in the next chapter, I'm going to be quite annoyed at Ishmael. <laughs> like, well, we do know that Ishmael is kind of terrible at telling a story. Like, that bit where we're like, okay, it's getting back into narrative again, you know, in Moby Dick, um, the chapter Moby Dick 41, you know, it's describing the, uh, you know, he's, it starts okay. with Ishmael saying, I was among them. Okay, I did just skim the next chapter don't, quickly. Don't give it away. I'm just saying he doesn't disappoint. Fair enough. <sighs> but yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think we're, it's, it's nice that we're getting back to narrative. And I think there's a, you know, this is, this has been in some ways the roughest patch in terms of slowing down and holding back in the, in the text that I can remember. But Ishmael has surprised me before, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes not so much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think it's about time to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, what tune is it you pull for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? <laughs>